Good morning. Welcome to church. It was good to watch that update from uh, the Mennonite World Conference. It's an interesting thing. This is Anabaptist World Fellowship Sunday, um, and so it felt like a good time to bring it up. It's something that we don't think about very often, that we are a part of something much larger than just ourselves here at Pleasant Valley, that uh, we're, of course, a part of the EM Conference, and that conference is a part of a wider Canadian coalition of Anabaptist Mennonite churches, and then that group then is a part of this worldwide group, um, and Mennonites exist all around the world. Certainly there are many more of them in Africa and in Asia than there even are here in Canada. And so Mennonite isn't all about low German and Schmontwatt and not dancing. In fact, it is a multicultural movement across the world. And so it's good to recognize those who walk with us in our sort of corner of faith here on the on the spectrum of Christianity and and uh, to understand that we are a part of something bigger and to take these opportunities to pray. So it was good to hear the update from them. And also, I encourage you to click that link that was sent in the bulletin and go to the prayer uh, chain that they have there with requests from churches around the world. It's a good opportunity to take a little bit of time today to pray for the global church in this way. But today, uh, we are going to get back into our deeply formed life uh, series. Uh, we are heading through this series on the book. A Deeply Formed Life. It's a book by Rich Velotis. We've been going through it for the last, well, I guess, the last three weeks. And this is week four. And uh, this will, in fact, be the last week of the series. But it's been a series that we've gone through, I guess, an acknowledgement of the new year, an acknowledgement of the rhythm that we find ourselves in, the, the fact that now in January is so often a, a point, a natural point in the year, where we're thinking about change and improvement and these sorts of things. And so it's not meant to be something that creates shame or guilt, and it's not something that meant, that's meant to create a sense of obligation or duty or to add to your list, but it's meant to encourage softly the, the continuing work of growing into people who are more Christ-like, of, of stepping into alignment with God's call for our lives uh, of seeking to become the people who we were created to be, um, to live in deep relationship with God and Jesus and with the people around us. So before we get into it, uh, today's topic, I want to open up in prayer. God, you are good. And church is good. Thank you for church, for the opportunity to gather like this as a community, even in this way. Pray that as I speak that uh, you would be glorified in this God, that your words would be heard, that your truth would be told, that your gospel would be preached, that this would all come back to you, Jesus. I pray that as we, as a community, process these things, that we would also grow closer together, that this would be something that would unite and draw us into deeper relationship with each other. I pray that as we look at what it means to have a deeply formed life, that you would be encouraging us to put our roots down deep, that we would be anchoring into your foundation, that we would be resting deeply in your truth, and that we would understand that we are held by you, that you are in control of this, that that would give us peace and calm and assurance, uh, and no matter what life throws at us, that we are held. In your name, 
Amen. So, each week in this series, we've been covering a different uh, section from the book. We started off very much by looking at the internal. Uh, I spoke in the first week about slowing down, about finding quiet spaces uh, in our lives to connect with God, about establishing sort of almost monastic rhythms, these slow rhythms in our busy lives. Uh, And the second week very much tied into or flowed out of that slowness. It was a call to self-examination. It was a call to uh, take an intentional look at the bottom 90% of our icebergs to recognize the ways in which we've been shaped and formed the baggage that we can carry, the lenses that we view things through. And Darren, last week, he flipped uh, over to the other side of the Venn diagram to look at the external, the, the call to live missionally, to reach those around us, to spread the gospel in our lives, uh, in our relationships, in each of our individual contexts, to share the good news of Jesus with those around us. And and now that we have these remaining two chapters, and honestly, I... Um, I left these to the end because I wasn't totally sure how to best approach these things in our context. Honestly, I hoped that we would be in a place where we could be speaking face to face. I valued being in the room with you uh, to process some of these things uh, as opposed to just talking into this uh, sort of blinking light here in front of me alone in my living room. But uh, what these two topics are, the last two topics that uh, Rich deals with in his book are the topics of racial reconciliation and of sexual wholeness. So those are both important and essential topics, and they're they're timely topics as well. They're significant to what's going on in the world around us. But I was trying to figure out how to do that well, how to approach these topics in a Bible-centered, church-centered way uh, for our church, for our context, recognizing the different journeys and stories and experiences that are out there, recognizing the wide variety of people who are listing everyone from two through to how old are you, Frank? Eighty uh, nine. Huge, huge range of ages uh, and experiences um, that we're working with. So to work with some of these topics in this sort of a, a somewhat disconnected context is a little bit difficult. And so this is where I've landed. Uh, as always, I view these times of teaching, these sermons, as conversation openers, not conversation closers. I want the message uh, that I give on a Sunday morning, the messages that Darren gives, the messages that others in our church gives, uh, give to be messages that open up dialogue and discussion and thoughtfulness and good questions. That may be a simple way for me to sum up one of my main passions with preaching. I want to be a preacher, a teacher a pastor that helps people to ask good questions, that helps people to ask good questions, and then also gives them the tools or helps them find the tools to answer those questions well, to have good answers, Uh, the Bible, church community, um, the Holy Spirit inside of us, most of all looking at Jesus himself. And so today I've kind of taken these two last topics, sexual wholeness and racial reconciliation, and I'm going to be covering them both, but in a fairly general way. Um, but please, if you want to discuss this further, if you've got questions, uh, first of all, as we've been saying throughout the series, consider getting a copy of the book. Uh, it's an easy read. You know, Darren said that last week, that it's an easy read. So you can trust him that it's uh, that it's easy enough to get through. And it explores these topics, of course, in a deeper way than we can here in this context. Uh, but the second piece of this is, is, is please feel free to reach out to me or to Darren 
Uh, if you want to talk about some of these things, if either of these topics sort of tweaks your interest or, or has you confused um, or you want to get into specifics, please, please feel free to reach out. We want to, like I said, have this be a conversation opener, not a conversation closer. But let me explain my reason for um, combining these two things. As I mentioned, my first two weeks uh, focus very much on the internal or personal piece of our lives, quiet time, slowness, examination. And Darren's blessed last week focused on the external or the communal call to our lives, living missionally and sharing our faith. And to me, it happens to be true that both race um, or, or social justice, those sorts of ideas, as well as sexuality or intimacy, uh, or connection, these these sit uh, very much in the middle of those two things, in the intersection of our personal and our communal lives. Uh, we can map it out too against the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, verse 34, it starts, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course, you know what Jesus said. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So loving God well is this vertical relationship with us and God and loving others well are these horizontal relationships. And, and, and one of the interesting things that I've noticed happen through the rest of the New Testament, and I've talked about this before, is that the writers of the other books, uh, Paul especially, begins to combine or condense these two things down into one. He sort of smushes them together. And, and Romans 13 is an example of this. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He echoes this again in Galatians. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus called us to love God and to love others. And, and Paul seems to at some level hint that if our lives are focused on loving others deeply, that shows love to Christ. If we form our lives around self-sacrificing, self-giving love, if we use our whole hearts and souls and minds to love the people around us, that which we do unto the least of these, we do unto Christ. The love we show to those around us shows love to God. And so the two overlap and intersect and flow in and out of each other. <clears throat> in addition, uh, and this is a thought, as I was processing this a little bit with Darren, this is a thought that he brought up last week. Uh, it's interesting that both race and sexuality are shown as being fractured in early Genesis. Um, when Adam is created, he's created whole and complete, but God sees that Adam is lonely and he 
and he splits him. He breaks him into two. He takes a piece of him away to create Eve, these two human beings out of this one original human. There's this separation there. There's a division there that's created. And it's healthy. It's good that it exists. And it's good that there is this longing and desire and attraction uh, between Adam and Eve. It's a God-given thing. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. But still there is this division that wasn't there before, the separation between man and woman. Uh, two puzzle pieces looking for a way to connect. And Genesis verse 24 acknowledges that. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It is in that becoming one flesh that they return to the state that God originally intended, connected and together. It's a restoration of God's original plan for humanity. And then, of course, uh, just a few verses later, sexuality is further fractured, this time in an unholy and a sinful way, at the fall, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Suddenly there is shame and there is brokenness and there is hiding because of nakedness. There is this fear of, of true intimacy, of being seen naked. Um, and we see a similar pattern uh, with community. Uh, in Genesis 11, it says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. They said to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So, the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So, it represents a fracturing of God's original intentions, a breaking apart of things because of sin and pride and greed. And so, when we understand sexual wholeness the way God intended it for us, and when we understand community the way God intended it for us, what happens is that we begin uh, to live and to exist uh, in the center of this Venn diagram where our love for God exists as love for others, and our love for others shows our love for God, and our internal lives and selves become intimately connected to something that is larger than us, into a community that itself is a body. And in this way, what we're doing is we're walking ourselves back to God's original intention for these things. Maybe um, an analogy for this. This may or may not land for you, but I remember seeing a gif of uh, the polar vortex that's been bringing us this warm temperatures, this sort of unusual wind pattern that is that is pushing the air down so far that we're receiving different temperatures over January than we normally would. Uh, and I couldn't track it down again, but I found one uh, from last year that shows a, a different pattern. So this is not representative of this year, but it shows the same kind of swirl. And what struck me as amazing about this image was just how much it looks like the pattern of soapy water flowing around in a bathtub, the pattern of uh, something small kind of moving in those same directions. Uh, and yet here that same sort of swirling and rippling organic pattern is stretching out over thousands and thousands of miles. As you look at the natural world, 
um, it's a bit of a rule in nature that that the what looks what happens when things are small also happens when things are big. That small things tend to look very much like big things. The same things repeat over and over again at different scales. Um, Richard Feynman, uh, a, physici a physicist and teacher, who among other things was a part of the Manhattan Project. He was a part of the group that developed nuclear weapons for the U.S. He was an incredibly brilliant scientist, um, not a Christian, uh, said this. He said, Nature uses only the longest threads to weave her patterns so that each small piece of her fabric reveals the organization of the entire tapestry. And so I can see this reflected in a spiritual sense too, and maybe it's part of what Paul was getting at earlier. The way that we treat others shows what we think about God. The way that we live in our small moments adds up to or is reflected in how we live in the big picture. The way that we live internally is reflected in how we work in community. And so that then is our calling, not to live purely focused on God or focused on man, but on both. Not focused on our own needs and our own selves or only on others' needs, but both. I believe uh, that in so many ways, God is a both and God, that God delights in, that he loves to bring together these things that seem like opposites, that seem like they shouldn't mix, uh, and emulsifying them, bringing them together into something new. Kings and servants and firsts and lasts and intimacy and community. That, that's not to say it's going to be easy for us. All it takes is a glance at news headlines to see how deeply broken our culture's response is to both race and sexuality. But it is our call to live at the center of the greatest commandment and the great commission. And so the question becomes, how do we go about doing that? How do we find that balance? in our world, in our culture, in our church? And that's a question that takes a lifetime to answer. Paul reminds us of this when he says that our walk with God is a marathon run. It's, it's not a sprint, and it's completed only when we leave this earth. The balancing act is never going to end. But what I thought I could do together with you in the time that we have left was just to draw a couple of thoughts or ideas or phrases out from those two sections of the book to explore, just to give you some pieces of the puzzle. wanted just to give you brief sort of introductions to these ideas and then actually give you a moment to respond on a couple of these things, um, give you a question to respond to so that we can kind of dialogue about this together a little bit. So the first concept I wanted to look at in terms of how we are called to live in the intersection of ourselves and the world around us is to remember our histories. Remember our histories both personally and corporately. So there's a moment um, in a different chapter in the book, actually. I think it's a self-examination chapter where Rich uses a line that's, that was stuck in my head, which is this. Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. And what he was getting at is this. We are spiritual beings. We're born again in Christ but we are still physical beings. We are shaped by all sorts of factors here on earth, including our stories and our pasts and our generational patterns and our histories and many more things. And we talked about some of that in the self-examination sermon. But we are slow-moving ships. We don't turn quickly or easily. 
Ask anyone who has tried to quit smoking or go on a diet or stop drinking or, I mean, stop chewing your fingernails. We, we don't change easily. It takes effort and it takes intentionality and it takes awareness and it takes tenacity. And that's true on individual levels. And it's also true for organizations and communities, including religious organizations and communities, including the church. And so in order to aim properly for where we are wanting to end up, we need to recognize the significant momentum of where we are coming from. The wisdom of looking to our past helps us orient correctly in the future and avoid the mistakes that may have been made previously. So in the Bible, one of the most repeated phrases, uh, seems like especially in the Old Testament, is, is the word remember. We hear the prophets echo this over and over and over again. Remember, O Israel. Remember, O Israel. God had to constantly remind his people where they came from, lest they repeat the sins and mistakes of their past. And as we remember together, what happens is we begin to be positioned to learn from history and not to repeat it. So this is my question for you. Uh, you can answer this personally. You can answer this in terms of, of Pleasant Valley, or you can even speak to the larger community that we live in here in this area. Um, what parts of our past have shaped us, for better or for worse? What are things in our past that have defined or informed the identity that we have now? Another line that stuck out to me as having a simple, memorable truth to it was this. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I'll say that one more time. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so the second point I want to draw out is this. We are called to recognize our growth areas, our opportunities for growth. And again, both personally and corporately. It's difficult to grow unless we have taken stock of where we are currently at. It is not a healthy thing to look at the community you're a part of and constantly tear down and look for negatives and nitpick and groan and grumble and complain about how things aren't as they should be. That's not a healthy stance to take. I'm not calling you to go there. But neither is it healthy to coast along and assume that we're perfect, that there's no room for improvement and ignore areas where real growth is necessary. Uh, when I think about that in the context of, of these two subjects that Rich covers, um, and when I think about that in the context of, of living in the midst of personal and corporate, living in the middle of our love for God and our love for others, uh, a line comes to mind. And this is what uh, Rich talks about. I think one of his, his Bible college professors using this line, saying, the real question of Christian discipleship is not so much, can I be your brother in Christ? It's, can I be your brother-in-law? We are called to be a new family, to have a new level of connection, of closeness, of dependence on the people around us, to be willing to teach and to learn from, to hold accountable and to be held accountable by, to sit around the dinner table with, to live life together with over long periods of time. And so it's valuable to ask the question, 
Who's allowed in our church family and who isn't? Have we drawn healthy lines? Are we living up to God's call on the church to be Jesus' hands and feet? It's a big question. And we want to continue in an affirming way, in a way that builds up and encourages our congregation. Ask what opportunities we have for growth across all parts of our spiritual growth as a church. So that's the question that I have for you. I'll ask it specifically about Pleasant Valley right now. What areas do you feel God is calling Pleasant Valley, us together, to grow in? Where do you feel that there is opportunity for us to grow into a more Christ-like body together? The last point I want to consider is our need to, or the importance of, relying on God. Again, personally and corporately. There's a beautiful uh, comparison that Rich makes in the book about the transformative power of Jesus Christ. He speaks about this in one of the chapters on sexuality. He says that Adam and Eve hid behind a tree, naked, and conquered by shame. Jesus hung on a tree, naked, and conquered shame. We have been set free by God himself. The world, I think, is aware, deeply aware, that something isn't right. It's not right in the way that we relate to each other across different racial communities. It's not right in the way that we communicate and disagree with each other. It's not right in the way that we process sexuality and intimacy and identity. I think everyone, no matter what part of the spectrum, no matter what part of the argument they are on, would agree something is off in the way the world is approaching these things. That there is brokenness and that there is imperfection. But what happens is when we try to answer that question on our own, without God, and inevitably gets messy, and it gets muddy, and it gets distorted. We have proven over and over and over again through history that we cannot find the answers to these questions on our own. It is only as we look to Jesus, to his life, to his teachings, to his sin-conquering death and resurrection, that we have a hope of understanding our identity, our sexuality, our relationships with other people properly. I spoke previously uh, a few weeks ago in a message on Philippians about finding joy in the Lord. I guess that's more than a few weeks ago by now. Uh, but about finding joy in the Lord, and I talked about the fact that Jesus becomes the lens through which we understand joy. He becomes the well from which we draw on joy, and he becomes the source of that joy itself. And the same is true here. When we think about becoming deeply formed people, when we think about the intersection of our lives and others, the intersection of our love for God and our love for our neighbor, these things can only be done with Christ as the cornerstone. Systems and books and processes and ideas and meetings can all help. They can be helpful tools. They're valuable things. There's a reason why we're going through this series together because we believe, I believe, that these things, these sorts of systems and ideas can be really, really great tools for us to use. But God himself is the one that we ultimately look to and the one that we draw our strength from and the one that we look to in order to move us from point A to point B on this, closer to him. And as we do this, as we engage with this, something amazing 
begins to happen. And that's what I want to close on, actually. Um, what I'm going to do is, is, is I'll close. I've got a final thought here, and then I'm going to ask a question at the end. I'll already let you know what that question is. Uh, I'm going to ask it in a bit. This is the question. Simple. Over the course of the messages, that's today's message and the previous three in this series, uh, is there one thing, one piece of advice, one truth, one moment that has stuck out to you? Something that you can use as a tool or fuel or encouragement with the sort of deep formation that we've been talking about. So I'll ask you to respond to that in a couple of minutes. Um, but first, when we are able to live correctly in this balance, when we with the Holy Spirit's help, with Jesus's help, uncover an incredible truth. Um, or when, when we do this, we uncover an incredible truth about our everyday lives and the moments that make them up. Earlier in the sermon, I talked about how small things add up to big things, how the micro and the macro are the same, just on different levels. Uh, and one of the practical ways that I believe God has spoken to this uh, truth in a spiritual way is in the uh, in the sacraments uh, so consider this uh, when Jesus was born the wise men brought him gifts of great value rare beautiful expensive luxurious gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh gifts fit for a king and it was a beautiful and appropriate expression of the value and the worth of Jesus of, of his elevated status of his royalty of his leadership and his lordship and yet through the pattern set in scripture and by Jesus himself, uh, we have, the church has developed a set of sacraments. So the word sacrament comes from uh, the Greek for sacred or hallowed or solemn, uh, mysterious. Um, these holy set apart rituals or ceremonies that are of the highest possible significance for a Christian. Uh, the Catholic Church has seven of these, seven sacraments. Uh, today, uh, as part of the EMC, we recognize two officially, two sacraments. We call them ordinances in the EMC. And those ordinances are baptism and communion. Uh, many church traditions hold up other things, such as uh, the anointing of oil with oil is, as an important symbol. Uh, but watch what happens. The holiest traditions in the Christian church are not built on gold and frankincense and myrrh. Instead... The most set apart, most sacred, most important traditions are built on the stuff of everyday life, of bread, water, oil, wine, dinner ingredients. Jesus takes the most simple, most basic stuff of life and elevates it to the holy, to the sacred, hallowed, solemn, mysterious level. Jesus says, Take of this and eat. Take of this and drink. This is what I am made of. Everyday life. Everyday ingredients. And what I believe is true is that when we live in Christ, when we clothe ourselves in him, as it says in Colossians, it's more than just bread and water that become holy. Our interactions with the people around us, our sharing in church, our relationships, our ability and willingness to become intimate and open with each other, are reaching across the border to invite in the stranger and the outsider. Those things become holy, sacred, sacramental as we live. God infuses the ordinary moments of our life with holiness and meaning as he elevates them to something more, something higher. And when we find the balance between our inner relationships, 
between our inner lives and our outer relationships. When we hit the center of our love for God and our love for others, God is there with us, taking those experiences, those moments, those words, those gestures, and making them into the stuff of heaven. A deeply formed life is one that is so firmly rooted in that truth, the calling that God has for us, his presence here for us, his sacrifice and the freedom he has bought for us through Jesus, that our eyes are open to those holy moments all around us. And so I want to ask you to respond. What moment from this series, be it a verse, a quote, an idea, an exercise, a comment that somebody made uh, responding to a question has stuck out to you? What piece of this will you carry forward with you as we seek to, individually and as a church body, grow back toward God's original design for us? Thank you for your responses. Amen.